Dr. Judy here. Do you love to read books about dogs on all subjects? I was recently a guest on the podcast Dog-Eared with Lisa Davis, where she interviews authors who write books about dogs, and I highly recommend you check it out. Lisa reads every book cover to cover, and her warm and engaging personality draws out her guests, and the resulting conversation illuminates the book, but without giving away the whole story. Also, I will be on monthly to answer her listeners' questions about natural pet health. So whether you want the latest advice on how to keep your furry friend happy and healthy, training tips, inspirational memoirs, or anything else dog, Dog-Eared is right for you. I just read a fantastic book, When Worry Works, How to Harness Your Parenting Stress and Guide Your Teens to Success. It is by Dana Dorfman, Ph.D., She also has an MSW. She's a New York City-based psychotherapist with 30 years of experience treating adolescents and parents in her private practice, schools, and agency settings. Dr. Dorfman was the co-host of a parenting podcast, Two Moms on the Couch, and resides in New York City with her family. Do you prefer Dana? Dr. Dorfman, what do you like? Uh, Dana is fine. Dana, before we jump into the book, I saw you in a podcast interview, or it was on a video online. And you talked about having learning disabilities. Now, did you know at the time, because I think a lot of people in our generation did not know, or did you actually get diagnosed at the time? No, I was not diagnosed with learning disabilities, although um, I have an older brother who, um, who had been, and it was sort of at the, probably like the very beginning of kind of the identification of, um, of learning disabilities. And in fact, I had been a very, um, I was an early reader, I was um, quite proficient academically. And I think that that was somewhat deceiving, because as, um, as I got older, and certainly, right around the time, I also have a younger brother who was seven years younger than I am. And it was probably shortly after, as he started to emerge, um, and I was around the around fourth or fifth grade were sort of I, 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 in retrospect, realized how much difficulty I had comprehending and how much difficulty um, I had paying attention, which, of course, I blamed myself for. It wasn't until about five years ago that I realized that it was like a pretty significant attentional issue. I was um, extremely social and also very, um, a little bit spacey. And I, and that was just my calling card. So I think that, um, it, one other thing, which I just think is interesting, which I have just sort of started to reveal in more recent years as well, because it had been such a shameful kind of secret. Now I'm really like coming out, but, um, I had learned to read very young and my parents, I think, had been, uh, my parents are very achievement oriented academic people and were somewhat surprised by my brother's learning issues, my older brothers. And so I, I kind of perceived, I think, as an observant, perceptive female, uh, uh, stereotypically female, maybe, um, youngster that like this was not the this was not the preference of my parents and I was a very pleasing um emotionally attuned kid so I knew then that this was not going to get me (laughs) too many goods and I was already identified as 
smart and in the smartest reading group and all of these things. So it was so mortifying to me then that suddenly I wasn't understanding what I was reading. I absolutely could not organize my thoughts, my writing, what was going on in class. I had no idea what was going on, but I was way too embarrassed to admit it. So I just for a very long time thought that I couldn't read and um, sort of faked it. For <laughs> so you're yeah. actually, you're, on, you're interviewing a, a, a fraud, but I, oh. I, for many, many years. And it wasn't until I, I was very close to not graduating from high school because I just never handed anything in. I was, I was considered sort of a goof off and my parents assumed that I was a smart kid who was way too social and that I wasn't putting in the effort. And that was preferable to me to not, to not try hard, to appear as if I wasn't trying hard and not doing well, as opposed to what if right. I were to try and not do well, it would have been mortifying to me. So, um, and I held up the front for a very long time. No, I think that's so interesting. And I think people are always talking about neurodivergency and neurodivergent. And, you know, people listen to the show know I have a daughter that's neurodivergent. And I I haven't been diagnosed, but I feel like I have some ADD at least. I don't know, if maybe inattentive type. So you write in chapter one, my crisis du jour. Uh, as I write this, I'm in the throes of a parenting anxiety spiral. First of all, what is that? I can imagine. <laughs> and what was happening? So um, in that particular story, I think that most parents can relate to the feeling. It actually just happened to me yesterday at, at my son's hockey practice. Even I guess it can happen anytime. But parents, parenting itself is an innately anxiety-producing uh, undertaking because um, anxiety's purpose is to protect us. It's a survival mechanism, and it's to anticipate and prepare for any kind of future danger. So it's also sort of a future-oriented um, emotion or physiological state. And if you think about what parenting is, parenting is about protecting our children and preparing them for the future. So you could see how anxiety is, is how parenting is prime breeding ground for anxiety itself. And then as we, um, and, and we become more anxious about uncertainty. Uncertainty is the um, kind of trigger or igniter of anxiety. And if we've learned nothing else from the past few years is that nothing is certain and there is always uncertainty. And so parents are understandably sort of seeking something to anchor themselves and to feel like um, they're doing the right thing and that they are mitigating the uncertainty of their kid's future. And so achievement is kind of a perfect receptacle for that. And we know in our hyper productivity uh, world and our hyper achievement culture and society that this is also socially sanctioned. Everybody is doing it. It feels like it's a reality. And so... Um, and so a parent, so now I'm going to get back to your question, which is that, so a parent anxiety spiral is essentially that, that somehow or other something ignites a parent's worry or anxieties, and then they start to go down the worry rabbit hole. And if we can track what it is that we're thinking when we're anxious, a lot of times we don't even realize that we're anxious because we're so used to those 
um, right. like tapes in our head. Tapes are outdated now. I wish. No, I say the same thing. Oh, it's fine. Thank you. Okay, good. Same generation. And so we have the same um, the same tapes in our heads, and don't even realize they are such background noise. Although they're they're not even noise, they become our beliefs that we don't even realize that what we're thinking are not necessarily facts. So in this particular um, instance, and in, at the opening of the book. My son, uh, who was, it was during his sophomore year of high school, found out he has this very close group of friends. Um, there were four of them and they had been really stuck by each other throughout the pandemic. We were so grateful that he had them and really a very beautiful friendship, especially from, from what I know about male friendships as well. And, um, and I learned around this time of year, last year, um, at, was at a Super Bowl party that, um, that the other three boys had all applied for this, um, international immersion program for their junior years of high school. And that my son, I didn't even know about it. And I heard about it while we were at the, at the, this party, which no longer felt like a party to me. I was then so, when I heard about their, it wasn't an imminent departure, but they were going to be gone for the entire year, the entire next year. And I thought, oh, oh my wow. God, like I was finally anticipating that he would have a normal year. We were just emerging from COVID or the crisis of COVID. And it, it he was going to be going into his junior year. And despite, and literally that morning I had been writing, you know, my book about the perils of, of achievement culture and you know, anxiety and all of this. And Im immediately I was down the rabbit hole. I thought, oh my God, what's going to happen to him? These are his best friends. He's going to be totally unmoored. And um, I tried to sort of keep myself together. I went home that night. I tried not to show him as we all do for parents, as parents. Right. And was up all night worrying like this I was so worried and how is he going to get through junior year? And that's the most important year. And, and at one point my husband rolled over and he saw that I was awake and which one of his favorite phrases now is worry working. <laughs> like when I'm <laughs> awake in the middle of the night and um, he said, you know, so I told him that I was completely worried and he said, aren't you writing a book about this? Like, what do you do? And it just, it, no matter what it, it captures us. We love them. We, we, they, we want them to be okay. We want us to be okay. And so we yeah. go into these spirals. Right. But see, to me, that totally makes sense. Like, holy crap, his friends, his core group, that's so important. They're all going to be gone. Like, that's a lot. It's a lot, although I also want to put it into perspective that I was, as much as I was immersed in this, I did also have a sense of like, you know, people are dying of COVID. This is not such a big deal. Like people, kids are resilient. He'll be, you know, I, I knew, right. but I also had been very deliberate with both of my kids and, and my husband as well about not micromanaging their social lives and becoming very involved in the dynamics of what was going on. And so I also was kind of um, just just disappointed in myself that I was also becoming so anxious about his social life when... I that, know. But you can't help yourself. You know, it's just, no, you it's can't. the realities of parenthood. 
No. And when you have a kid who's neurodivergent, I mean, I had to learn the hard way. I mean, it was tough. I, I would meet kids who seem cool or nice. Oh, I have a daughter. I'm like, my daughter's like, mom, stop trying to make friends for me. Yes. It's, it's so understandable. And you could understand how you would naturally be anxious for all of the reasons that I had described, uh, you know, for, and for, for what, and then, um, and so in your effort, you were anxious about her and you were anxious probably about you too in, on some level. And, um, and so what was driving your behaviors in those moments, your intentions were so good and it came from a place of love, but that was actually like an anxiety driven behavior. Like if yes. you think about, um, and I'm not saying that in a blameful way because I'm, no, I will no, share I many anxiety driven behaviors that I do. We all do. And, right. but, um, and then it makes us less responsive to our teen or our kid and, um, and more reactive to what's going on inside of us unknowingly. And if I had stopped you and I said, and in those times and said, Lisa, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Which I would never would say it like that. But if I were to, you would say, look, she needs help making friends. I love her. She's, she has a hard time. I have the skills. Like why, what mother wouldn't help her? I'm not going to just stand idly by and let her flail and so, um, and if I said to you, like, well, you're, you're anxious, you would probably say, maybe you would, but you would say, well, of course I am. And you would be too, which I would be. And you would say probably like, and, and I, I also love her, you know, where you would have some other kind of, so it isn't that anxiety is the sole propeller, but it is right. oftentimes present and we don't even realize that it is. And so much of the time, especially in these very high-achieving, high-pressure situations, parents are so anxious and don't even realize it. They'll say, my, my teen is so anxious, I'm so worried about them, forget about me, I don't care if they go to Harvard. It's a, but we're all, all of our anxiety is operating whether or not we think it is or not. And so the more in touch with it we can be, the better off. Yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah, boy, I just I feel like an ass because I'm I'm pretty judgmental. I'm like, well, my anxiety and my trying to get my daughter friends is okay, but you're pushing your kid to go to a school they don't want to go to. You're a jerk. <laughs> so it's, oh, it's well, good for me, right? Yes, well, we're well, all I, which I do talk about, and that's also a sign of you know I think that that's a lot of times when we we all are judging other parents. I confess to it in the book very early on. Um, And because we're, these are our peers, we're sort of comparing, we're naturally comparing. And um, just, just last night at, at hockey practice, I happened to see another father that we just had parent teacher conferences. I, my husband and I, and my son had met with his advisor, who's sort of like the one who coordinates it. And so he said, Oh, did you have your parent teacher conferences? And so I said, Oh, yeah, it went really well. So he said, Oh, we're just, we're just trying to connect with the last of the teachers. And so I said, Wait, what do you mean? And he said, Well, we'd like to meet with each of the teachers individually and kind of catch up, get to know them, understand a little bit more about the classes. And I thought, Oh, my God, we didn't do that. What's wrong with that? It's like, does he feel like we don't, you know, that we don't care? Why? why is that what you're supposed to do? Are we not following the rules? Is this like, is this not helpful to him? Would we be more helpful if we did it? And it kept, and then my immediate w- response was, and this is a very lovely father, but I thought, ah, he's over-involved, you know, like judge it yeah. because it's not what I would do or I was trying to justify what I had done. So I judge him. 
when in fact, when the judgier you are, it's just an indication of my own anxiety of, of, right. So that's also sometimes can be a clue to us, like anxious, anxious, you know, (laughs) anxious. Well, it's, it's funny because my daughter goes to school a half an hour away and I, everyone who listens to the show knows I'm obsessed with sleep. I'm not going on a diatribe, but I'm in bed by 8.30 every night, no matter what. And they had a parent-teacher conference from 7 to 8. My daughter said, Mom, they're, they're my teachers. I'm going to email each one of your teachers and check in and explain that we're not good night drivers. I'm not going to just not show up. Absolutely. And I actually, I really sort of, I, and, and to reframe it, I think that you're also modeling for her how to honor your own, like, honor is my new word, but like, like you know, to respect your own needs and to know yourself and know how you function best. And then to try to see if there's a way to accommodate, you know, or to problem solve. So in fact, that was it. That was sort of the ideal uh, demonstration of like acknowledging perfect. Thank you. All right. Well, (laughs) I'm excited to jump into these eight descriptions of the anxiety reactive type. We've got sculptors, game show contestants, crowd pleasers, avoiders, clairvoyants, shepherds, correctors, and replicators. So I am a combination of the corrector and the avoider, but not completely. I don't have all the aspects. I tried to create kind of playful names for each of these. I call them parts, parent anxiety reaction types. And they are um, it's a framework to um, for uh, to illustrate in some way the different ways that achievement anxiety specifically manifests itself in parenting. So there are these pattern ways that I had observed um, of parents' behaviors that I thought would help parents kind of realize in some way um, to, to, for them to realize when their anxiety might be operating and then to kind of t- take some self-reflective steps to ensure that they were being more responsive to their teens. So, um, and just, just, I think you'll find this funny. I hope so. Um, my parents, um, my father, my parents had received the book. My book just came out and my parents received it about a, a, a week ahead of me for some reason. And, um, so my father was reading the book and he was not a particularly, um, he's not somebody who's that interested in this kind of stuff. And um, he's a mathematician. He's interested in other things. And so, um, but very loving. So he was reading it. And after each chapter of, um, because I, I delineated the parts and made each part a chapter um, with a case description, he called and he would say, okay, so far I'm two for two. <laughs> okay, I'm three for three. And by the end, he called and he said, confession, I'm eight for eight. And so he said, I could, I could see myself in all of these people. That's so, awesome. Um, and I think that that is really the point is that we all are part of it to some degree, because we're all swimming in the same water, you know, it's, right. um, so, um, so a sculptor is somebody who is, um, who's pretty self-sufficient themselves and they are, um, their, their, their anxiety rises when they can't seem to find an innate talent in their kid, when they want to 
kind of there, they are the parents oftentimes who are saying, you know, I want my child to have a passion. I want them to pursue something that they really invested in, which is all well and good. But a lot of us learn our passions later on. A lot of us need a lot of time to experiment with different things. But a sculptor is determined to sort of like create or sculpt a, a, a beautiful, beautifully um, created child. Uh, excuse the, this is in New York. <laughs> You're in New York, New York City. Yeah. Yes. I'm so sorry. Jealous. It's, um, which is also another hotbed for, you know, achievement culture. Oh, so yeah, those are the, that's the sculptor and each of each of the types. Also, I had tried to identify both perks and pitfalls because there are many helpful elements to this way of managing your anxiety. Somebody who is self-directed, and proactive and a good problem solver. Those are all wonderful ways to manage anxiety and probably worked for us. That's why we're using them in parenting. It's that, um, it's that also some of the time it can also hinder us in our parenting because it can go so much into overdrive as you were describing that then it, um, it, we lose sight of our, our, uh, either our values or our children. Yeah. And values is huge, which we're going to get to. It's so important to understand and, and know your values. Talk to us a little bit about uh, avoiders, which I, I definitely fall into that a bit. Yes, I fall into that as well. I actually am the same as you. I am both a corrector and an avoider. Um, avoiders are those people who are... Um, who appear to be more laissez-faire. It's like they, they trust that things will unfold um, in a way that, that works and they are less um, kind of proactive. They are the people who, it, for example, are not going to find the, the latest and greatest extracurricular activities. If there's something offered at the school that the school finds sufficient, that's what they're going to do. They're not, and, um, and it's not laziness. It's just sort of an innate trust that, that children and parenting and, and human beings kind of unfold in a way that will work. Um, and it may look like the path of least resistance, but a lot of times it's also just a, a trust in the school. A, they're not the parent who's necessarily going to go in and ask for uh, enrichment or extra help. They figure that the, it will get taken care of. Right. Yeah. I mean, I kind of fall into that, but I kind of don't because of my daughter's learning differences. She's a great advocate. She's been advocating for herself for a long time. But when she was younger, I would definitely be like, make sure this or that, or we're sending her to this program for kids with um, either learning differences or autism spectrum and BLD, stay at a college for a few weeks in the summer. And you, you know, so I, you know, we are proactive in that because I want her to have that experience. So that's why I feel like I'm a little bit of an avoider. You know, but but one of the things I, I want to make sure I bring up because this this is something that my husband and I are going through, although we're not doing it this way. In chapter three, we learn about Stephanie, and she. I like that you write who was pressuring quote actually insisting that her son Jared break up with his girlfriend be, before leaving for college. So my daughter is madly in love with this younger wonderful young woman who went to college. My daughter has one more year of high school next year, and her daughter's and I mean her girlfriend's in college. I would never in a million years insist they break up. That's insane. Like they're their own people and life is going to throw crap at them enough. I understand the anxiety this parent has because I have it too. And so does my husband. 
but I, I couldn't imagine like pushing my daughter to get out of a beautiful relationship. Yes. Or acting on it. And actually in that particular case too, I even exaggerated because I was also trying to illustrate in some way, although this mother was a little bit more, certainly more aggressive and assertive and, and uh, micromanaging than you are. What would she fall under? Because that was before you mentioned the different types of reactive. So what, what, I, well, in that in that particular scenario, too, I was really trying to illustrate, too, the many cognitive distortions in my demonstration of what happens to us when we're anxious. And I was trying to demonstrate the kinds of thought patterns. And so that was, I mean, certainly we could, we could see where she, she might be, she could be a, um, she could be a game show contestant because that is like somebody who believes there is a right or wrong, a good, a bad. And, mm-hmm. and she was convinced that you should not have a, uh, you should not be in a room, a long, a long distance romantic relationship um, when you go to college. And so there is a right and a wrong and, and, sh- and she, um, and her thought patterns, which are illustrated in that chapter three, sort of demonstrate the the many ways that our um, anxiety distorts our thinking so that we can't think as clearly, but we think Mm -hmm. as we're thinking that they're facts, you know, that these, that what goes on in our head are truths, you know, that, um, and they're, they can just be anxiety driven thoughts. We should be anxious. We will be anxious. We will want to take some kind of action. And so this is not um, in any way kind of a a declaration or or, um, a referendum or something on being a, a, like a hands-off parent in any way. These are just sort of different ways. And I think that also we don't realize when we are behaving in certain ways that anxiety is operating. The more aware of it we can be in a non-judgmental way, the more that we can sort of suspend our anxiety or at least disentangle it from what's going on presently. So then we can really sort of let our values um, in the driver's seat. We were talking about driving before. Like if the values yeah. can be in the driver's seat and the anxiety could be either in the trunk or in the back seat or um, even in the passenger seat, I think that it's better uh, for our decision-making. We can feel more confident and more empowered when we're making decisions that way. Did you know that movement not only improves your physical health, but it also greatly supports your emotional health, reducing depression and anxiety? I absolutely have seen this in my own life. I'm a former professional dancer, and my passion for movement led me to create SWE Studio, an online community membership dedicated to get you moving and support your physical and emotional health. SWE Studio is centered around a fusion class combining the ancient Chinese practice of Qigong and the core strengthening practice of Pilates, a powerful and unique combination for all ages and levels of fitness. SWE Studio is extremely affordable for only $22 a month, and you can cancel at any time. Enjoy a library with over 300 classes to choose from, including Qigong, Pilates, dance, meditation, laughter, and I'm adding new content all of the time. 
If you missed my interview with Lisa here on Health Power, it's episode number 1167, Soul Care and Mindful Movement with Stephen Washington. Visit me at stephenwashingtonexperience.com and let's get moving. Well, you know, we've been talking about the downside of the anxiety, but the book is called When Worry Works. So talk to us about that because, you know, I, t- I think so many of us are like, oh, worry is just bad. Like, Yes. Well, and some of it, there's a little bit of a semantic difference because I think that worrying is really rarely is helpful, actually. So, um, but I am a bit, but from, because I wanted there to be alliteration in the title, I was kind of um, conflating anxiety and worry. So anxiety can actually be helpful. It is important. We have to have it. If you're alive, you need it. And it is, um, as I said, it is a self-protective mechanism, and it's something that ensures um, our survival. It helps to prepare us. It helps mobilize us. You know, there is something about before you're about to give, uh, you're about to get on a podcast with somebody, making sure that you've done your homework. That required a little bit of anxiety, not too much, but just enough for me to to say, like, you do best when you are a little bit more prepared and are familiar with the the host. And so do the following things so that then you are not, um, I say in danger or threatened, but that you're not uh, setting yourself up for um, discomfort. So that is, those are all um, ways that anxiety, I mean, there are many ways that anxiety can be helpful. It helps, it helps us to prepare. It helps us to be organized. It helps us to anticipate what we're going to need before we go leave the house, go on a trip. I mean, every, every, you know, in, in all ways. Um, so there are many ways and that's try that is once again, what I was trying to demonstrate in those case examples is that these attributes that each of the parents had were quite beneficial and were actually extremely helpful in getting them to where they were in their own lives. It just became problematic when it, um, they sort of imposed it or unknowingly imposed it on their kids. Right. And I think what's so great about the book is you go through these eight, but you really let them know what are the, you know, what you can do to help with these, right? And that sometimes some of this is good, some of it's not. How do we take out the good, you know, keep the good and get rid of the bad? Yeah, you do a great job of that. Thank you. It was, um, and I also, and it also helps us to, well, once again, become aware. I feel like I'm like a, like an, an awareness junkie or something, but um, <laughs> it does, it helps us to be more aware. And also, I think that there is such value to, and not that we all have to do a deep dive into our own psyches, but even as you were describing that we, um, parenting forces us to look at ourselves that invariably as our kids are going through certain developmental stages, especially adolescence, it's impossible for us not to think back or reflect on how we felt as a teenager or how we yeah. remember having felt and what our experiences had been with our parents, what our experiences with achievement had been, um, which was certainly one of the one of the motives for the book were absolutely because of my own experiences with very, um, unlike you, I didn't grow up on the West Coast with more laid back or a different kind. I grew up on the East Coast in a high pressured affluent town mm-hmm. with really, um, academically oriented and education centric parents. And so um, the idea of not being 
smart, was smart in this very narrow way and to be successful in a very narrow way um, would, would have been devastating, you know, so it, it, it would have been impossible for me not to consider all of that, especially because it had been so integral to my identity in raising my own kids. And of course, I overcompensated and overcorrected so that in my attempts to not be so, um, not be so grade centric and, um, test centric and things like that, that actually my kids, especially my daughter who was in a school where it was really um, where every other parent was logging onto the portal to find out what their, their kids grades were. And I didn't even know how, which might also be my learning disability, but. (laughs) Yes. Oh, oh God. Passwords are the, the bane of my existence, but um, and I never did because I knew that she was doing her work. I knew that she was dedicated. I didn't need to. And she felt like you were describing before also like a little bit. She felt kind of insulted and a little bit minimized. And she said, you know, everyone else's parents are talking about this and you're not at all and probably even saying judgy things as much as I tried not to. And so she said, you know, you you all you care about is if I'm a good person. She was saying it like a bad thing. I was kind of pleased with myself. But um, <laughs> but I think that she felt very misunderstood and not seen and that I was kind of minimizing and denying the world that she was living in and the school that I said, you know, we sent her to. So for somebody who was, you know, she was at a gifted and talented school and um, and I approved of it, you know, so there I was, though, like sort of straddling both worlds or giving mixed messages, which we all do. Yeah, we do. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, my daughter's at this awesome school for like quirky kids who are super smart and artsy. And and it's such a great environment. It doesn't have that high pressure kind of thing. So I, I love it. And yeah, I, you know, it's funny because my dad was a doctor and my mom had a master's degree. So and, and education was super important. But again, like I said earlier, the expectation was you're going to college, but there was no, there was nothing around it of like pressure. Um, I remember when I, my freshman year, I took intro to Buddhism and I called my parents and my mom was thrilled. She's like, that's great. You're expanding your horizons. That was her statement, right? She loved the idea of just learning stuff. And there was no like, well, what are you going to study? I mean, I had a friend who was an incredibly gifted artist and her parents wouldn't pay for college if she studied art. And I thought that's so idiotic because she's really flipping talented, you know? And so she had to like study chemistry or something. And I just find that so odd because again, I, but it's how I was raised. Like you just expand your horizons. You learn. So I ended up studying anthropology. I couldn't get a job to save my life. I had to go back and get a master's in public health, but It was more, it's not, college wasn't about getting a job. It was about growing as a person and learning new things, which I think is great. But it's also a pain when you can't get a job when you get out. So, And you could understand how on some level, while while certainly you approach parenting so differently, and it sounds like your personal philosophy is so different, but you could understand on some level those parents who feel like, I don't want my kid to be a starving artist and I'm not going to spend... Uh, whatever, $200,000 of my hard earned money for her to go and paint and, um, 
and and then not be able to earn any money herself. Like I think that I, I mean I too would not necessarily approach it that way, but I think that there are there are endless examples of of people who so that parent actually had their own anxiety and was probably reacting to point, it. Yeah. And um, an anxiety that came from the best of intentions, from a place of self-protection. So, um, and I do, I also, even when you were describing your daughter's school, if you don't mind my just saying something about that, um, every thought leads to another thought, of course. But you, uh, this idea, just the way that you so beautifully described her school, which I, I, it, it warms my heart to know that such places exist that that are that celebrate and nurture and cultivate kind of who kids are, and I think that sometimes there one of the issues that arises too is that that parents fear that a school that is too nurturing or too emotionally attuned or too psychologically minded is. At that all of that is at the expense of some kind of academic rigor or intellectual stimulation. And those two can so coexist. And in yes. fact, yes. they need to coexist. They, they do it where she goes. When, yeah. we're, when we're not emotionally safe and we cannot learn um, and we can't avail ourselves to new information if we're feeling extremely pressured and anxious. And so the idea that one would detract from the other is one of my, I don't want to say soapbox issues, because I also am very conscious of this book not sounding like I am anti-achievement. I mean, I have an sure. MSW, a doctorate, like I, I am, I wrote a book, like clearly I value achievement and I, Oh yeah. Um, and that's fine. And I, I, and I, I value achievement though, that is, um, that values sort of, um, innate motivation and also, um, and and recognizes sort of like the vast differences and the vast gifts we all have. We should not all be, have the same kind of intelligence. Like it just it it oh, yeah. never ceases to frustrate me. So I'm thrilled to hear that you've found a school that even if it yeah. even if it was in response to anxiety, like that was a way that it was helpful. You know, I mentioned values earlier, and I want to talk about in the book, you talk about the importance of values. You also talk about how do we align our behavior with our values. And you give some great advice. Talk to us a little bit about this. So values are actually something that if you ask somebody sort of what their values are, it's actually a much harder question to answer than I think that we realize. And in the book, I do offer a list of values, although you can access them anywhere. And I think that it is incredibly helpful if you can identify sort of those things that are most important to you, that are fundamental to how you live your life, not what you think you should do or what is the what other people do or what's the right thing to do, but really kind of what you believe in the depths of your soul. Um, so if you can identify three or four or sometimes five values that are most central to you and what it is that sort of the way that a corporation does when they identify an emission statement, like what it is that they're trying to achieve and what it is that they value or what they think is most important. 
that can always act as the informant. It can be our North Star. It can be our anchor. It allows us something to fall back on when we're in the throes of these like moment to moment decisions that we're trying to make and feeling conflicted and, um, and anxious. And so if we can first disentangle, like I acknowledge our anxiety, identify it and disentangle it from this decision and also insert our values, that can be the way that, that what is driving our decisions or what is uh, informing them. For example, the one that you provided was wonderful, actually, in that you said, um, I, I mean, you didn't say that my values are, but you said, like, I can't drive at night. It wouldn't be safe for me to do so. And um, so you certainly value being involved in school or and being a supportive parent and being um, and participating. And you also value your your health and value sort of your individual needs. And so in some way, you were making the decision not to go to the um, to the conference at at an hour that didn't like was not wouldn't have been healthy for you to do. And you found an alternative way to address it. It wasn't then like you threw up your hands and said, well, I guess I just missed it. Then you said like, ah, I can, I can email each of the teachers and explain that this is, this is the reason why. And could we figure out either a daytime appointment or you didn't say all of this, but I'm putting this out there or a zoom or something like that. And so you, you were demonstrating to your daughter, this is how I make decisions that, um, and so it wasn't an anxiety. If you were anxious or more anxious, you may have said like, well, I'll look really bad in front of the teachers if I don't attend or my daughter's going to think that I don't care or the other mothers are going to wonder where I am or whatever. And then had you risked your life to to go out at that dark hour and driven not and compromised what was most important to you or what you could actually do, you would have been, you know, it would have not felt as comfortable. So this was a an imperfect, I call them imperfect, yet um, creative way to solve the problem and integrate your values into the decision. So thank you for sharing that. I'm glad you gave me some thought. Oh, good. Here. Yeah, I was like, these what are people going to think? I mean, and if I'd gone, I would have been annoyed. Let's just be honest. I would have been annoyed and worried. Like, shit, I don't like driving at night. And oh my God, this guy's droning on and on, you know? <laughs> I get it. She's doing great. I'm I'm out of here. Can I go now? Right. And so and so if you were able to talk to them either talk to them at a daytime hour when you're feeling more uh, awake, you could be more con- you could get more out of the whole the purpose of it exactly. is for you to get something out of it. And so if you were going to be distracted and uncomfortable the whole time that you were there, it 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 sort of de- defeats the purpose. So um look at what values aligned decisions you make. Woohoo! Yes, and I do highly value my mother's broaden your horizons. I really do. Mm. Mm. And I really carry that 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 broadening your horizons thing. I think it's so important. But you know, I could be a little annoyed that my parents didn't, you know, prepare me at all for the real world. I mean, they're just like, yeah, study whatever you want. Uh-huh. This is great. And I get out. I literally could not find a job. It was like, I ended up, I was a short order cook and I worked it. I mean, I did a bunch of stuff and it's fine. I also love that they were so excited that I was studying Buddhism. We're Jewish. My mom wasn't afraid like, oh my God, you're going to convert. She's just like, that's great. Learn as much as you can, you know? 
<laughs> yes, that, they, that they're um, that they're not mutually exclusive. Like that's the thing, and I think that even this bit of reflection that you're doing of like I I like that they they imparted this wisdom or these values. They really work for me, and that's something that is very helpful. And I think that a little bit more direction and a little bit more would have been helpful. So then, therefore, when I become a parent, and which you are now, like that, I. I'm going to do things differently. It becomes problematic. One of the types is a replicator, which you must have read, where we we just consider that this is the way this is what parents do, this is what everyone in our family does. You don't even think twice, sort of like this whole thing about going to college. Like of course you go to college. That that's that is not even a belief that you would question. And so we also do a lot of replication and there are some people who don't necessarily. They, they, it sort of worked for them. Their upbringing was was pretty conflict free, uh, and so they just want to continue that. And it's oftentimes when we have a partner who has a different upbringing or different ideas that they start to question, like, "Well, well, why?" or "Or we didn't do it that way," or whatever. So that kind of reflection too, I think, is so helpful, not in a critical way, although that is certainly part of it, but even just a understanding and making decisions about what you're going to take with you and what you're going to leave behind. The book is amazing. I mean, I could talk to you forever. I just love it. When Worry Works, How to Harness Your Parenting Stress and Guide Your Teen to Success. Dana Dorfman, PhD. Dana, how do we learn all about you and your great book? Uh, Thank you. Thank you for your kind words. Uh, You can um, buy the book anywhere that books are sold. And um, You can also take a parts quiz, the parent anxiety reaction type quiz, to even find out what what part you are. It sounds like you took the quiz, Um, which you can get on my website, which is drdrdanadorfman.com. And there are also a whole series of resources and even a parent decision-making worksheet in there uh, as well to help you when you're kind of in the throes of um, having to make a a tough decision and don't quite know which way to go. So, um, but all of the information is on that website. Wonderful. It's been such a great conversation. You're always welcome here on Health Power. Everybody, please rate, review, subscribe, and do check out Dog Eared with Lisa Davis. Tell all your friends and family about my shows and keep coming back. Thanks so much. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you and we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.